Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Onyx Hunt provides detailed, color-coded maps with public and private land ownership information. Onyx turns your phone into a fully functional GPS even when cell phone service is not available and gain the confidence to hunt new areas and states. Game wardens are using Onyx to make sure you are hunting in the right spot. Shouldn't you be using Onyx first? Start your free 7-day trial by visiting Google Play and the App Store. This is Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and I use Onyx. Wish you could fish more, anywhere, anytime. Rod Geeks, a St. Croix Rod's partner, has developed a 42-inch one-piece travel rod designed and built with the same technology found in St. Croix Rods. This travel rod is offered as a kit that comes with the RG42 rod, spinning reel, fishing line, pliers, and tackle tray. All in a case with space for your wallet, phone, and fishing license. Just grab and go. Perfect to keep in your pickup, car, or RV. This shorty performs much like a longer rod, but is compact enough for easy storage and for on-the-go use. Make this the summer you fish more. RodGeeks.com Guidefitter is the industry network for professional outdoor guides and outfitters. The trusted destination for consumers seeking and sharing guided hunting and fishing experiences of a lifetime and the enterprise influencer marketing platform for outdoor brands. Guidefitter and its members represent the pulse of the guided hunting and fishing industry. Guidefitter's outdoor partners provide discounts to select types of outdoor professionals, including game wardens, members of the military, guides, outfitters, and other outdoor professionals. Over 145 brand partners and counting. Gear across many categories, including packs, footwear, clothing, flashlights, knives, optics, even firearms and ammo. For more information, go to guidefitter.com slash wardenswatch. That's wardenswatch, all one word. I'm game warden Wayne Saunders, and I'm a member of Guidefitter. This podcast is brought to you by Maine Operation Game Thief. Please join me, game warden Wayne Saunders and other game wardens on our adventures, protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. 
Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Episode 22, Lieutenant Mark Ober. Before we get into this podcast, or the introduction into this podcast, just wanted to thank Don Noyce of Don Noyce Chevy in Colbrook, New Hampshire. Don and I wrapped a 2020 Chevy 1500 together. A Warden's Watch slash Don Noyce Chevy truck. It is awesome. And if you get an opportunity to go on Facebook or Instagram, check it out. It is a beautiful thing. 7th Street Graphics in Berlin, New Hampshire wrapped it. They wrapped our Operation Game Thief New Hampshire trailer probably about 10 years ago and did just an outstanding job. So I went back to them when it's time to wrap a Warden's Watch truck to get the message out there, to stir it up a little locally in New Hampshire, in New England, and anywhere I may go. So it's a, it was a great opportunity. I'm, I'm going to tell you, if you're looking for a Chevy vehicle, Chevy truck, Chevy car, give Don Noy Chevy in Colebrook, New Hampshire a call. It's a small town dealership that can compete with the big boy prices. I think we all like that small town feeling when we go buy a car. It just seems so fast paced and pushy pushy. And you just don't get that feeling at Don Noy Chevy in Colebrook. It's a modern look, the modern Chevy look with a hometown feeling. And every one of those people that work there is just outstanding. And their their slogan, it's about the people. It's about the people that work there, and it's about the people that buy cars there. And I would totally agree. So thank you again, Don. I really appreciate it. It was an awesome opportunity to, to work together on this project. As you listen to this podcast, uh, it's the interview I did with Mark is on some old equipment. You're going to hear some fading and stuff like that. I didn't intentionally use old equipment. It's some, one of the first podcasts I did. I think I've gotten a little bit better since then, but it's a great interview, and it's certainly going to use all these great interviews that I did. Mark Ober was formerly my sergeant, formerly my trainee, has worked in Coas County most of his career. You're going to hear a lot about the adventures Mark and I had together, working together, uh, investigations of night hunting, decoys. And when I talk about decoys, mostly it's about decoy deer. And game wardens use decoys. They're simulated deer, simulated grouse, simulated coyotes, simulated animals, moose, elk, whatever. And it's to get a response from the hunter, whether good or bad. Some people shoot these animals correctly. Some people don't. The ones that do are a little embarrassed, but they shouldn't be because they did everything right. The ones that don't do it properly and violate the law, when they do it, they are going to get a ticket. And everybody says decoys are entrapment. Let me give you the the insight on that. Entrapment is being put into that position. We're providing an opportunity. Entrapment would be if there was somebody in the truck that worked for us and knew that that was a decoy and encouraged the person to shoot it. Said, there, oh, look at that deer. Look at that deer. Shoot it. That would be entrapment. Just providing opportunity is not entrapment. And we get a lot of our laws, our case law from drug cases where the undercover is using 
what is perceived by the other people as drugs, and it's actually not drugs. But their perception is what counts. They believe it to be drugs, so that is what they're charged, that they were purchasing drugs, when they're not really drugs. But that is the form of using material like a decoy and able to get the reaction when people don't know that the stuff that we're using is fake, whether it's fake drugs or whether it's fake animals. We are trying to get that response, whether good or bad, and it provides us an opportunity to be there and observe this, sometimes record it. And remember what your mother used to say about character? Character is how you react when you think nobody is looking. And that's exactly what a decoy provides, is you and the animal and how are you going to react. Sometimes you have friends, sometimes you don't care. Sometimes they would have the same reaction. We have had whole trucks bail and shoot at our decoys. I just wanted to give you some insight on the decoys. And the stuff we talk about is just primarily deer decoys with Mark. And then we finish it off with a search and rescue because it wouldn't be northern New Hampshire if we didn't have a search and rescue mission story in there. So great great uh, podcast with Mark. Really enjoyed it. It was very much like the Colonel and I because I had some skin in the game, so to speak. I hope you enjoy it. If you do, please like me on Facebook, uh, follow me on Instagram, and subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. That's how podcasts survive, is you subscribing. So please subscribe to Warden's Watch when you get an opportunity on any of those places that you can get my Warden's Watch podcast, which is all the major podcast spots as well as on on my computer at wardenswatch.com. Thanks again for listening. Here's Lieutenant Mark Ober, District 1 Lieutenant, Northern New Hampshire. And the thing that's special about Lieutenant Mark Ober is that he took my job. I know exactly what he's going through and what he's going to go through and all those ins and outs and... uh, we're just been sitting here when when I when I start these podcasts I always go through so it puts us in a state of mind of stories um, and Mark and I have a lot of history too. What year did you come on, Mark? Too much history. Too much history. Two thousand five. And, and when we were talking, it's always good history because you you like those days back then, huh? I wish I could go back in time. And, and I do the same because yeah. I think about when I started and all the stuff I was doing and that those were the great days of fishing game, the, 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 the stories I want to tell these people and uh, the experiences we had together because we, we had some good ones. So 2005, you were a trainee, huh? I was a trainee from July 2005 to July of 2006. I don't know if everybody knows, but trainees in New Hampshire, we travel all over the state uh, to train because... As we expand throughout the country, game wardens' jobs are different. No different in New Hampshire, the southern part to the northern part. I'm Mark. Yeah, it takes it takes a year to get all that experience down, and um, it's, it's it's a I don't know a um a way of doing things that shouldn't ever change because you need that year to get really engrossed in the whole state and figure things out. Yeah, it acclimates you basically. Acclimates you, yeah. So, and then you land where you're supposed to land, and then you start acclimating all over. And and you landed in and the I, North Country. I landed in Berlin, New Hampshire. Well, it was probably a pretty decent landing back then. It wasn't the hub of activity is today. No, no. There was definitely not the ATV scene that it is now today, but the mill was still in operation too, and more of a hunting, fishing type clientele we, that we naturally deal with. But I remember those days well. And I Yeah. 
And like a lot of northern states, uh, the paper company was a big deal. Northern Maine, northern New Hampshire, all the way across the country. I think that was a way of life in northern areas because they'd cut trees and make it into paper. And today we see all our mills closing and a whole different demographics coming in, which um, is Hmm. recreation. Recreation based, yes. We are the recreation police as game wardens, aren't we? The way I like to put it is when I talk to new trainees or people thinking about doing this job is you kind of got to say to yourself, all right, what I'm essentially potentially going to do is ruin someone's good time. And saying that is, okay, you're enforcing the laws. So if someone's out there recreating, whether it be fishing or riding an ATV or snowmobile and they're breaking the law, you're going to write a ticket, which essentially in their mind is ruining their good time. But there's a reason for everything we do. And and that's how I'd like to explain it to individuals to see if, okay, are you, are you, ready, willing, and able to potentially ruin someone's good time in their minds. No, you're right. And I, I think uh, when I came on, uh, snowmobile uh, speed limits were just coming out. So we used to write a lot of tickets for snowmobile speed limits because the snowmobile limit in New Hampshire is 45 miles an hour. We went right till 60, but that, that's pretty common. Yeah, so I wrote a lot of those and ruined a lot of people's good times, so to speak. <laughs> so to speak. Yes, and you're still right. You're still ruining good times. Still doing it. Got, did any of those things stand out in your mind where you ruined a good time? That uh... no, no, I, I, I don't. As far as you always got the person who grouses a little bit because they say that. Oh well, I'm I'm never coming back to New Hampshire again because you guys are ruining my good time. Uh, you hear that every now and then, but overall, people they know, they understand, and they take their medicine, so to speak. Um, but as far as cases go, um, I don't really remember too much on the OHRV or snow machine side of things because there's just so much of it, and it's generally small. But hunting and fishing, there's there's been quite a few over the years that are very memorable. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna weigh in here and let you. I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you a story about ruining a good time here. So, uh, snowmobiles again, 45 miles an hour. I'm running radar. I have my lieutenant back then, Marta Gary Beating. We're in Pittsburgh, New Hampshire, the most northern area of New Hampshire that has a lot of snowmobile activity. I get a group stopped uh, out of Maine. Of course, we hear, you know, uh, we don't have any speed limits in Maine or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I understand that. So I, uh, I write the ticket out and the guy gets so mad that he blows his nose in it and rips it up and throws it on the ground. So, and then, well, what do you think I said then? You probably wrote him a littering ticket. That's exactly what I told him. I said, if you don't pick that up, you're going to get a littering ticket next. So, and he picked it all up and on his way again. Uh, that comes back to visit me, though, in, in, the, in the future, because uh, Marty's waiting down the trail in a cruiser with the chief LaPointe, the chief of police in Pittsburgh. So I go down there and tell them this story. And, uh, you know, they're like, oh, you should have called me or whatever. And I'm like, no, I handled that. No, no problem. But... What I failed to do is tell the clerk of court that this guy <laughs> blew his nose in the ticket. Oh. And Chief LaPointe happens to mention to Jan Corliss, who's the clerk of court at the Colbrook District Court, says, uh, did Wayne tell you that uh, the guy blew his nose in a ticket? And she looks at him and, and he ripped it up and she pulls out this ticket that's been all taped together. <laughs> and here's the ticket that this guy blew his nose in that she's been handling and she is less than impressed so i clear that courtroom one day and she says get over here and she lets me have it 
And uh, to this day, anything ever happened, never happened again. But uh, I'll tell you what, she was not a happy camper that I didn't let her know that this guy blew his nose in this ticket. You know, so. out of all the years we've known each other, that's the first time I've heard that story. I, I you know, uh, Marty knows it well, and uh, Richard and uh, Jan. But yeah, I, as I'm thinking about ruining days uh, and, <laughs> and snowmobiles and that 45 mile an hour speed limit, you know, that's that's that. <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, left an impression with uh, the clerk well, of bet. court. So, but uh, yeah. So uh, hunting season, though, that's a. Uh, you know the games warden's passion, and we, we, me and you have certainly had some uh, good cases. One, one we're going to skip over a little, just because the ins and outs, and uh, having civilians involved with it. So that that, that was exciting. But we can kind of skim over and just uh, tell people what happened because that was a uh, that was a crazy day for me. It was probably the longest time frame that I've ever worked continuously. Yeah, that's um, that's that's that'll sit in the memory bank for for my whole life. Um, but essentially. It was a twenty, at least a twenty-four plus hour day. Yeah, we started like started at midnight. Oh, we started at midnight, yeah. And then we didn't didn't clear, and of course, it all ended at midnight the next night with a with a call for a potential missing hiker. After all, our hunting evolutions were done, but and that that's what people don't understand. No one replaces us. No, you know, we don't have a second shift, a third shift, a fourth shift. We're it. Yeah. So when when the stuff hits the fan. Uh, we're out there. We're, no matter what, if we worked a you know twenty four hours uh, and it hits the fan, guess what? You're working twenty six yeah. hours. So the one thing I do vividly remember about that year that was my first year after the trainee year where I was actually assigned. And one statement you made was you'd you'd been on a run. I don't know how many years in a row, but you've made a made a night hunting case so many years in a row. This was open, I believe, opening day of rifle, and it um, was, and we got a night hunting case, a couple of them actually. Well, we didn't uh, start off that way. We didn't started start off, off working a decoy, but we made a case that morning too. That, that we'd made a trespassing case. We set up at night on trespass on the property there, right? And we just you know, let it go into the morning, and we got a shooter, got a shooter. And then after that was clear, we worked the rest of the day, just working, checking hunting our hunting licenses or or answering calls. I don't really remember specific details, but then part of the day. I think we were looking for other spots to work decoys, and I can't remember if we actually ended up working another decoy that day, but it started to rain, I believe. Mm. And then we stayed out late. It was after it was after dark by the time I got home. Because we ran an after dark decoy, we all- Yeah. And then um, it wasn't long after I got home, the phone rang, and it was you calling me back out for this case that we'll talk about later, which ended up going into the early morning hours. Yeah, and you were sitting on the done. toilet when I called you, weren't you? I was sitting on the toilet. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and my my girlfriend at the time, or my wife now, I distinctly remember her saying, answering the phone and saying, Oh, hi, hey Wayne, how's it going? And then her next words were, uh, can you call you right back? And then she's like, Oh, okay. And then she knocks on the bathroom door. And it's like, it's Wayne, he needs to talk to you now. So she handed me the phone and and away we went. I wasn't on the toilet very long after that. Yeah, and uh, that was your first night hunting case in District 1, was ended up being an investigation. So. Yep. And I guess I initially got the call. People that were involved that were uh, civilians, and the civilians ended up uh, grabbing their guns and following these guys, because the, the, what happened is, uh, you got to be, you know, if you're a poacher, you got to be careful where you poach a mark. Yeah, you don't want to upset some of the locals, especially up here, because they tend to potentially try to take things into their own hands and deal with it uh, how they would think they would normally deal with it. But and, and I will say they were a whole lot of help. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what I remember about this is the the pouring rain, it was a it was it was the rain was just coming down in buckets. Mm. 
And the fact that these individuals who took the initial call, which was a pickup truck driving through a field shooting their guns at deer, and ultimately they hit one, was these these guys found the location of where the deer had died and actually put a tarp over the blood to preserve to the preserve evidence. it because it was pouring rain. Because it was pouring rain before they actually took off and tried to find the people who did it. Yeah, because it was a relative's field across from the, the, the family farmhouse that yeah. they're doing this in. The call comes out from the guy that lives at the farmhouse to you know, another relative, and they, they load up the truck with the guns and everything. <laughs> they call a friend. He, call the a relative friend. calls a friend and who <laughs> lives just up the road. Yeah, so they jump in the truck, and they they, they know enough that they want to preserve that evidence because mm-hmm. they want to catch these guys as much as we do, which is pretty awesome, you know, yeah. to be honest with you. Probably you, you would tell people not to do this, but I'm kind of happy they did because it would have been probably really hard to piece together without them basically running down the truck, huh? Yeah, they ran them down to a camp, at which point the uh, poachers made it known that uh, they didn't want those individuals there. So they backed away, our, you know, our friends that, that tra- tracked them down. And I think they pulled guns on them, they too. They pulled guns on them. So they decided, okay, well. So do we want to turn this into a shootout over a deer? or? Right. And they were, they, they, they said, nah, we'll, 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 and then they had already called at this point, you know, when we were, yep, you know, yep. finally getting home after <laughs> working 20 uh, something hours. Yep. We go over there. And we meet up with these guys on the end of a road, basically, because they're, they're standing there. They're not going to let these guys out. Right. Although, and again, I'm foggy because this was, you're going back few years. 13 years now, I think. But we did. We also had a state trooper that was helping us out. Right. Mike Mike was there. Mm-hmm. Mike and, Cody. Um, I, I think what we ended up doing was we initially went to the scene, didn't mm-hmm. we? Because they, they weren't there anymore, they left. They yeah. they were through the woods. So we saw the tracks of the truck that that cir- that got circumnavigated this field, and then the tarp that they had placed down over the blood. We there was a huge amount of blood, and so obviously what they had done these, these poachers had shot this doe and loaded the de- the deer into the back of their truck before they took off. And then from there we went up to the camp that they had been seen going into. Uh, so it's. <laughs> We did a bunch of stuff that night. Yeah, but there and, was two. And they had kept an eye on that road to make sure no one came out. Okay. So when we got there, the vehicle was still there, and they had gone off through the woods. So we ended up down at the end of the road where we apprehended them, basically. Um, yeah, they, I remember they drove their truck into the the woods as far as they could go to try yeah, to hide to try it. Try to hide it, which wasn't a very good job because we found it fairly easy. Yeah. Had a rifle and a shotgun in the in the cab, and the the bed was just soaked in deer hair and blood. But there was no deer, so they had found time to stash the deer before we we, we arrived. But it's just they were on the porch of this camp. They couldn't get in, I don't believe, because nope. they didn't have access to it. But they were friends with the owner. Yep. All wet. They were all wet, covered in blood, um, denying that they did anything. Heavily intoxicated, and of course, I th- believe they were both seventeen-year-olds at the mm-hmm. time. So around and around we went. We had the trooper helping us out, but. I had to give one of them my long johns yep. out of my backpack because he was sweating cold and shaking. So well, I gave him instead of my white long johns. That was pretty sight. Nice white long johns. But that there. was after you took his pants from him, if you remember. Oh yeah, correctly. that's right too. I did take his pants from him. Yeah, you're so right. So because it, to preserve the evidence, it we, was blood all over him. You you took his pants and his boots, I believe. Yep. Because they had blood and deer hair all over him. So as evidence, you took them, which he he gave up, and you gave him some long johns to put on. That was nice of me. And we had the t- the truck towed to a local garage to get out of the 
basically to help preserve the evidence that was in the back of the truck. Mm-hmm. So it was it was literally without exaggeration coming down. This rain was just it was buckets. It was raining very hard, but ultimately we couldn't find the deer that night. We did some searching. So we did tow the truck. We got the pants. We got the boots. Got the 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 rifle and the shotgun. Rifle and the shotgun. Yeah. And um, but yeah. one thing we couldn't get was the deer. Right. And it's we pouring. Find it. Pouring rain. Buckets. And I remember, obviously, we had to have someone watch them while we took turns at looking in the woods to mm-hmm. see if we can locate this deer, and just yep. couldn't do it that night. So we reluctantly let them go. Yeah, uh, they got a ride, didn't they? they we yeah, called they for a ride for a ride. So we didn't arrest them right then and there. No, but we we took all their. And then we went up to the scene where they shot the deer. Yep, went to the scene, collected evidence underneath the tarp. Thank God they tarped that, huh? Yeah, because it was you know it took a bunch been a of mess. photographs, a lot of evidence. Um, went to the garage. Yes. We we collected the evidence that was seen in the back of the truck. Basically, it was just blood and a lot of deer hair, and that's really all we needed. Yeah, we photographed all that. Photographed everything, seized the weapons that were there. By this time, it was after after midnight, and decided to make a plan to come back the next day and look for this deer, because we knew it had to be there somewhere. Yeah. Now, this, this is the opening day in 2007, and this is when we started at midnight the day before. So, and we're rolling into, by the time we cleared that truck, I mean, we're talking three in the morning. It might have been 2006. Okay, it might have been 2006. Either either way, <laughs> but we, we've worked 20... Yeah, because we started at midnight mm. sitting on the field, I believe. Yeah. We took we did shifts with, with Doug and Matt. Yep. They sat the first half of the night. We sat the second half. That's right. And then just worked straight through from there all the way till we got this call. So, we're a little punch happy here. Punch happy. As a matter of fact, I, I, I remember driving home and telling you that there's a T intersection at one of these routes, and uh, I almost fell asleep. Almost drove right through it into the solid bank, you know, because I was so tired. Mm-hmm. And you, you had gone there the next day, and you were like, "Are those your tracks there?" And I'm like, "No, I didn't hit my brakes that hard, <laughs> but there was a, 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 a strip of rubber that had been left there at the same spot." So I remember you asking me that, and I didn't do that, but mm-hmm. we did make a plan. To come back to find that deer the next morning, didn't we? Yeah, we decided, uh, or you decided, meet me at 8 o'clock because it would give you some more time to sleep. Yeah, like 3 to 8, that was a lot. And um, of course, you were running a little further away than I was. Yeah, I, I lived a, a couple towns yeah. further not, not away from bad. you, but not too bad. But I just, I got up early because I just couldn't sleep. Yeah, so you went to bed at 3 and got up early. Got up probably around 5 and mm-hmm. then decided to to get there as early as possible. That I had this fear that they would try to try to come back and... And get yeah. the deer out of there and not, and so we was, wouldn't find it. That was good thinking. And so ultimately we- I had fear that we'd drive off the edge of the road and into a bank, right. you know, because we were so tired. <laughs> so at around six, I was back at the initial camp that they had gone to before they had moved. At this point in the daylight, I could see some some truck tracks going off into this tote path past a, a small cabin. And so I just followed it until the tracks ended. And I looked and there's a big mound of brush just piled up in it. It didn't really look out of out of place or anything, but but uh, looking closer at this pile of brush underneath it was an adult doe. So what they'd done is they had enough time to just dump the deer on the side of the on the side of this trail and then pile as much brush and shrubbery on it as they could to to try to hide it. But um, after snapping a bunch of photos and removing the the brush, it was definitely a a doe that had been shot the night before. And I'd found this I think before you even left your house. 
Yeah, probably because I, I remember said, distinctly being really pissed off at you. So <laughs> I don't know if I have to bleep that, but uh, rolling in and you're all smiles. I'm like, you know, and I'm a little early, you know, like five minutes of eight because that's that's early for me. But and you're all smiles and you get that dough on the back of your uh, tailgate. And I'm mm-hmm. like, uh, oh, what time did you get here? Oh, I got here at six. I thought I thought we said eight. We Cause did. Because I, I would have been there at six, too, if I thought you were going to be there at six. So. <laughs> I don't know if I would have woke up as I was. I was pretty uh, slap happy even still. It's, it's you know when you lose that much sleep, it's hard to wake up a few hours later to to catch up. So, right. but yeah, then we prosecuted it. We ended up prosecuting them, and uh, yeah, ended up being a really really good case. We seized their guns, knives, their truck, their truck. Yes, and you know that's the only truck I seized and and tried to keep, but it wasn't worth anything. It was a piece of <laughs> junk. And didn't you drive it to the impound lot? I drove it State to Police? the impound. Yeah. That was that was a chore in itself, and it was a piece of junk and worth nothing. That was one I didn't want to keep. You know, I, trying to seize uh, vehicles over the years, I've had problems because either GMC owns them, Ford owns them, or you know, and if you seize from there, then all the you know the collecting companies are like, uh, "Geez, you have a truck of ours?" And I'm like, "No, I got a truck of his." Well, technically, it's ours because he hasn't paid for it yet, mm-hmm. so we really own it, which really sucks. Um, so I have to give back vehicles, the nice vehicles I had always had to give back, and this piece of junk I didn't really want. Yeah. So, yeah, I haven't had a whole lot, a lot of luck of seizing vehicles overnight hunting cases. I've tried, I've tried, but um, yeah, not a whole lot of luck. I'm sure there's wardens out there that have had better luck than I at seizing vehicles. So, but that that was a pretty cool case uh, coming from the the, the people that, that started it. There, there's a call that came directly to me and uh, rolled from there. But just like Operation Game Thief, you know, they can do the same thing: call and we can be on it like that. That was your first night hunting case ever. First night, yeah, first one ever because. The year prior, I was a trainee. Didn't yep. didn't get into anything at that point. Yeah, I didn't have you through hunting season. We could have gotten something. There. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> I always tried to get one. Just uh, and you know what? I, I take a lot of pride in this. I think uh, Jim was the only guy that never actually had a night hunting case that I was present for in my career because he came on the last year, and I really tried to achieve that, and I just couldn't pull it off that last one. But uh, everybody else in the district, all the other officers I'd been with or they'd been with me when we had actually a night hunting case, so that was that was kind of a cool thing to say uh, as I got done. So, But no, and uh, being with your first one, and then, and then you weren't happy. You wanted to see a muzzle flash. So, Correct. So we had to get that out of your system too. <laughs> and I've had a few since then, so that's always a good thing. Yep, I trained you right. Investigation. But and we didn't wrap that one up till It was a while. Ultimately. Right. But I remember uh telling you, uh, yeah, I'll meet you back here the morning at eight o'clock. And uh yeah. I was there at six. You were there at six. Yep. Found so, the deer. Yep. Wrapped it up deer. for you before I, you got there. I absolutely had it <laughs> had it all done. So but and I'll tell you, you know, back then Mark Ober always challenged me because uh, he's like, oh, I, I need a night hunting case. So I'm like, we got a night hunting case last year because uh, he'd be like, oh, no, that wasn't a real night hunting case. I'm like, what do you mean it wasn't a real night hunting case? It's like I didn't see the muzzle flash because the muzzle flash is pretty important to a game warden because uh, that's the adrenaline dump. You know, the investigations are fun, but there's no adrenaline dump in there. And Mark always challenged me to you know, something else. So now he needed to see, be there in person, see the muzzle flash. And then we jumped out a year. 2007, um, the first muzzle flash that I saw, muzzle loaders, opening day or opening weekend of muzzle loader. And of course, Wayne and I are working again. This day, we spent a lot of time 
driving around trying to locate the perfect decoy spot because we had a good decoy with us and we had a couple different locations in mind and the ultimate the, the spot we ultimately picked wasn't our number one but it was like a last minute decision where where are we gonna go we couldn't really decide it was either north or south in the and district we drove a little bit to get we drove there a little too. bit and um went an hour south just to get this spot yeah and so. it didn't leave much time for setup but we we set it up and or got it got it in a reasonable location to be set up and that that was my job as wayne uh was the chase vehicle so to speak so he sat in the cruiser stashed away i didn't like being the chase vehicle right, but there's only two of us so so i waited till after it was dark both legal and where you couldn't see anything and i set up the decoy at a specific area where someone would would have to turn their headlights or use a spotlight to actually see it it wasn't uh probably 10 minutes after i radioed down to wayne that i was ready to go and i was just picking out the spot where i could sit being out of the line of fire and where i could see everything I got my radio, my flashlight, whatever gear I had with me. And I specifically remember seeing the headlights coming from the direction we were hoping they'd be coming from. And I reached down to get my flashlight and I couldn't find it. And it was dark and I'm feeling around and feeling around and I can't find it. I can't locate it. And the truck is coming. So I just kind of hunker down and, and watch. And they did the exact same thing. that they, they did the thing we expected them to do or hoped they would do. They turned their headlights on the deer. And within 10 seconds, 15 seconds, the, the muzzle flash was there and the muzzle loader went off. And I just remember running, running to the, to the vehicle for, to do the takedown and without a flashlight, of course. So that's an officer safety issue that no one's ever heard about before. But ultimately, uh, the passenger got out, shot through the crook in the, the door frame, hit the decoy, and I got the driver and the passenger out, disarmed them both. Before Wayne even showed up. Now, now in defense, uh, people got to know that I'm not sitting on top of you with a cruiser. Huh? <laughs> uh, I'm probably a half mile down the road, and uh, you were a little closer than a half a mile. Okay, away. maybe that. But uh, you know, I had some difficulties, go- you know, going down there. First of all, you know, th- it's either feast or famine. You know, uh, the, the decoy thing is, you know, you shoot, kaboom, and then the adrenaline dumps and the action happens. Well, that that doesn't happen a whole lot. You know, no. Eric Fluette thought, you know, the first day in it, when he got into our district, he got a night hunt in case he thought that happened every night. It's it's a lot of work to get a night hunter. So I'm sitting down there, and I'm, I'm calling Matt Holmes, another one of our officers. It's, uh, you know, he's off, and I'm giving him a hard time about being off because we're, we're friendly and jokingly. I'm like, hey, it's the opening day of muzzleloader. And, and we were in his patrol. And we were in his patrol, and uh, he had to go to his grandmother's 80th birthday or something, so... Yeah. So, anyways, he he had a re- he had a good reason not to be there, but so I, I'm I'm calling him up and we're chit chatting on the phone as this big bang goes off, and I know what that means. Uh, that means game on, action. Instantly, I dropped the phone with Matt on it. <laughs> I dropped the phone, and I'm not in my cruiser. I'm in Mark's cruiser, which, if you guys remember, uh, you have to step on your brake in order to shift it. Back in these are like nineteen or the two. That wasn't that old. It was probably 2004 Chevy or something. So, yeah. so, but you got to step on the brake. Well, my truck had been disabled, so they took that, so I didn't have to actually step on the brake to to shift it into gear. So I could just shift mine into gear. Well, Mark's hadn't been disabled. I never stepped on the brake, and I'm trying to get this thing into gear, and I don't. I, I reefed on that thing like you. I couldn't believe it. I, 
my arm's hanging on that, and I am like, what the heck is wrong with this truck, you know? And I several times I am jamming it. That was all I can, jamming it into drive, and it's not working. And it just dawns on me that, oh, you got to step on the brake. And I step on that brake, and I get it into drive, and I put it to the floor, and I dig furrows down that railroad bed that I was sitting on. Furrows. And, of course, Matt's still on the phone, but the phone's laying on the bottom of the floor, the cell phone. So it, it was fairly new. So we had cell phones back then. And I, I roll in there at Mach 1. At least I think it's Mach 1 on this this road. And I see this guy standing out there. And I don't see Mark anywhere. And, I, of course, this is tense times. You know, guys just shot. So they got a gun. So we, we I pull out. I got my gun out. And I'm yelling at him, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? As Mark chimes, oh, I'm over here. He's behind the truck. We... we De, uh, de-escalate that. That was, and, and Matt was listening to this whole thing on the cell phone laying on the bottom of my truck. And eventually uh, I pick up the phone and Matt's still listening on the phone. So he gets it blow by blow and he hears me yelling. And yeah. he got to experience that night heading case from a whole different angle that we did. Good times. Good times. Yeah. And you, Good you saw memories. the muzzle flash. Saw the muzzle flash. Um, the adrenaline dump? Adrenaline dump ran right at them. They were, they, they were more shocked than I was, I think. Obviously, they were... To, they were deer in the headlights, definitely. So there was def there was no resistance at all. They handed me their muzzle loaders and put their hands up and and then waited for you to to arrive. But yeah, that was a good memory. Good memory. And you got to see your muzzle flash. Yep. And I'd only been on for less than two years. Less than two years. Already two night hunting cases under your, your yep. belt. Yep. You know, some guys. You know, I hate to say some guys can go a career without getting one because I hate to think that. But I know of guys that have gone careers without getting them. So. Yeah. And to a game warden, that's pretty important, isn't it? It is. Uh, that's. I, I I hope most people do this job f- for this purpose to to go out there and catch poachers. That's definitely why I I did it and still do it and couldn't imagine doing anything else during hunting season than trying to catch you know illegal activity, particularly at night. And uh, it's your it's your Super Bowl, your World Series, everything roll up into one. Yeah, it is, in my opinion. Yeah, and that's why we, we keep trying to get that ultimate Super Bowl World Series every year. Yep. I loved every minute of it, whether it was an investigation or you can't beat the in-person, you know, got them, the, did all that one. So well, as we're talking, I'm thinking of another another case that I really like too, Mark, uh, the time you saved the loon. <laughs> <laughs> and the loon, and actually that story has a tragic ending because I believe that loon was found dead the next day, but... Well, the loon you tried to save. The, the, the loon we both tried to save. We both tried to save, yes. But. Um, <laughs> well, there's some, some good photos, which... I'm going to share. Which um, basically, <laughs> if you don't know the full story, it looks like I'm the only one there trying to save it. Because I'm taking photos. No, but there's a couple with you and I, so there must have been someone Somebody else. Somebody had to, you're right. Someone else must, had to take someone photos. Else must you're have, right. Uh, but just a classic loon that was wrapped up in fishing line and sitting on the shore of a boat launch at Mirror Lake in Whitefield. And we did our, you know, we did our due diligence and our duty and tried to save the loon, but uh, ultimately something else happened or, or maybe it was too far gone, but we released it and I think we got a report soon thereafter that someone found a dead loon, but it might not have been that loon. We didn't do enough. (laughs) Although I didn't run it down to Concord either. So, so catching wildlife is tricky anyways, isn't it? This one wasn't so much because if you do, if you remember the call we took, someone had already put a, like a laundry basket over it to, Absolutely. to keep it there. Yeah. But yeah, the, the one thing I distinctly remember about this loon is how actually powerful these animals are. They are extremely powerful. And you were holding That's him holding down. Holding this thing, sweating, 
And I'm uh, trying to unwrap fishing line. Trying to cut the fishing line off him, and, and he was and not get up. bit. Yeah, and not get bit. Yeah. And I've seen loon injuries before. I worked with a girl in Wisconsin that worked on a loon project, and the loon actually hit her and her thumb and split her thumb. It was a Ooh. wicked, nasty injury. Yeah. Keep that in mind when dealing with loons and uh, sunglasses on. I think I know I had sunglasses on because yep. I'm in there doing that. But the the funniest part was, and, and Mark won't share this with you, but he's down there holding this loon as I'm cutting. He's like. I'm getting a cramp. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that. Uh, and I start to laugh. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't remember. Like, I'm cramping up. <laughs> and I'm starting to laugh at it because he's, he's been down, pinned on this sick, and he's in a position holding this loon, I and think he's cramping I do up. I vaguely remember telling you to hurry up because it's taken so long. And you were cramping up. I was cramping up, up yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I have those pictures, so I, you know, we'll certainly share those on the, the website so they can be uh, what position not to be taking the the loon off of. But that's that's certainly hmm. a, a, a fond memory of mine. And uh, <laughs> I, and you're like, you know, you and Matt are probably the only working warden still that uh, had a triple kill on a moose. Triple kill? Actually, no, that was um, that was to go to the beginning. Yeah, let's it go to was, the beginning. Um, our old lieutenant Doug Rolinski, who got the initial report that these. Two moose hunters wanted to report a double kill, um, although they only reported it when they brought one of the moose into the check station to check it, and they saw Doug standing there and decided to go up and tell him that they'd actually shot two. So Doug calls me, and we go up to the scene and find the other moose. And as um, as he had, uh, I'm trying to remember the story now, he, he made them gut out this moose, because we were going to obviously take it and try to salvage it. They had self-reported. They would self-reported. Um, and so while they were busy gutting this moose out, I decided to walk up the skid road where they had shot it. Just a, just a, probably another 25 or 30 feet. And lo and behold, I see another brown hump laying a little bit further up. I go up and check and there's another dead moose. And these hunters hadn't actually known that this one was there. So I called... Uh, my lieutenant, I said, hey, lieutenant, can you come up here for a minute? Because he was sitting there watching them gut out this other moose, and he comes up. <laughs> and uh, I remember distinctly when he saw it, his initial reaction was, oh. <laughs> and then, you have to bleep that, you know. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I was going to ask you if I can swear, but that, I, I got to give you the whole, like you were there. Yeah. It actually no, happened, no, I, right? I, um, I know the reaction because I think I've said that a couple then, times with you too. Yep. So then ultimately <laughs> the, uh, the the hunters who were busy gutting out this other moose heard that. So they that piqued their interest and they came walking up, saw that. And they pretty much without saying those exact words, you could see it on their face. Yeah. That's what they were thinking. Mm-hmm. And so then they told the story of how it ultimately happened. Uh, I think uh, one of the guys only fired once, but they were shooting from two or 300 yards away. And they had fired at one moose, which ran out of their view. It came out the other side. They fired again, lost sight of it. So they continued tracking. They saw another moose fired again, and this one they saw go down. And ultimately, when the dust cleared, they had actually shot three different moose. Yeah. Thinking that they had only sh- were shooting at the same moose each time. And when we had a robust moose population, that was kind of common, wasn't it? We usually had a double, at least double, one at least one double kill a moose season, sometimes two or three. But this was the first time I've ever had a triple kill. Yeah, no, and I, I, that's the only triple kill I've known of. Yeah. And but, didn't they say they were like long-distance shooters? They were used to hunting Yeah, they, they, they hunted out west. I think they had shooting sticks as well, but they'd hunt elk or mule deer or something and out west where they're used to long range shots and i got to tell you they they shot three times i think and they hit and they hit all three 
Yeah, so they were good shots. Yep. And they didn't try to hide anything. They, you know, we recovered the bullets uh, from each moose, and I, th- I want to say each each moose had the same caliber bullet that they were shooting. And uh, you know, they yeah, and and accidents happen. Let's face it, in in wildlife, and the best way to deal with it is to do that. You know, is to take your medicine, you screwed up, and uh, make the call to Operation Game Thief or something and self-report because we deal with people the same way they deal with us, huh? Yeah. No, we, we, we definitely work with them, and it's, it's way better to, to work with us or call us initially, let us know what happened, than us to find out and track right. you down. And we can understand how that happens because we see it often. Yeah. I, I find myself, I was watching uh, the Mediator program on uh, Netflix, and uh uh, they shoot a moose and it goes out of sight just to brief. And I, myself, I'm like, don't shoot it. Don't shoot it. And he didn't. So that was good. But instinctly, because I dealt with so many of these cases that, uh, you know, put one good shot in it and call it good and go from there, you know, mm-hmm. make sure that hits. But if they leave, get out of sight, go one tree, just one tree away. Don't do it. Done. You know, if you can keep your eye on that same animal the whole time, that's good. I yep. remember uh, Jefferson Cherry Pond. Uh, two beautiful bulls, and, and what a job we had getting them out of there. And yeah, I don't think you were on back then. Time, two beautiful bulls, I mean, laying dead each, side by each, because one stood up, they shot it, it went down. Well, guess what? The next one that was laying bedded right beside it stood up, they shot it, and it went down, and they went over, there was two moose. Hmm. Understandably, they thought it was the same moose, yeah. but when you lose sight of it, any game, I'm just, any game, don't, don't pull that trigger again, because you might end up with, Two dead bulls, two dead cows. If you can lock on and and not not lose it, uh, you're you're probably good for another shot. But uh, make that first one count. But it's good, especially people that are shoot really good. <laughs> yeah, they can yeah. squeeze the trigger off and be accurate every time. And then yeah, then we end up with a whole bunch of dead animals like these guys did. Right, and it's one of the this this particular location was one of the few spots I can think of where you could actually do a two or three hundred yard shot pretty easily. Normally those those ranges aren't feasible around here. Absolutely. I'm sure, you know, sportsmen have heard always the deer story too, where the deer stood up and they shot it and they stood up again, they shot it and they end up with, you know, other side of the stone wall, there's like three dead deer. Yeah. And it it does happen. So, and it's the way you deal with it is the way game wardens deal with you. Call that number and say, hey, I screwed up. Can we deal with this? And we deal with it the best way possible. You know, sometimes game wardens screw up. We're not perfect people for sure. So we we can understand how that goes. So Uh, I, I think I had my best decoy run with you too day after thanksgiving in harrell yeah when the lieutenant in a blinding snowstorm <laughs> says uh yeah the the acting major who's a- acting colonel's coming up and we need to do some uh decoy work and we need to be productive and it's a blinding snowstorm and i remember setting up i was so stinking mad that <laughs> i couldn't find a spot and this and that and how are we supposed we, to run a decoy in a snowstorm yeah we found a good spot and again challenging but doable and i specifically remember it because i'm the young guy so i'm the one that had to trudge thigh deep into the snow to set up this decoy well off the road to make it a a safe shot if someone took it yeah how far do you think that was uh i say 100 yards probably yeah we had to get a little bit far away from the road because it wasn't one of our better decoys it was a plywood it was plywood yeah but um but on that fresh snow on fresh snow had to leave tracks or you couldn't leave tracks couldn't leave tracks so you had to had to do walk through the woods with it away from where we were ultimately set up and uh oh you worked your tail off yep and uh it was right right after thanksgiving and we didn't have much faith in it i don't believe if i remember correctly it was a good setup but we just well we're doing it because 
Yeah, you know, looking back, I remember the outline of that deer. <laughs> the snowbanks were very high. They, what oh, did yeah. we have? Three, four foot snowbanks at that time in November? <laughs> November, yeah. Had white camel on. I did. You did, yeah. I was I was offset in some, I think, a good stand of furs where I could be relatively hidden and not be seen. And we got a couple shooters early on. Um, and I think that, you know, our, our, our former lieutenant, Doug Gronowski, was really big on decoys, love decoys, yeah. was like the decoy man to the point where I thought he was going to have a deer outfit for one of us to run around in so he could get a shooter. So uh, he, he was he, his passion was decoys and he loved it. And I think this was the first time he got multiple shooters in a spot maybe too. Maybe. We usually like run and gun, but this this was a good, it was a setup that we didn't want to move because hey, there was snow. Yeah, exactly. Um, we this, Once we picked this spot, it was for the duration. And the first two shooters, nothing, nothing, extravagant or memorable about it other than they i think they both shot they both from shot the road. from the road so they got out they loaded up they shot from the road which is a violation so we dealt with them appropriately and sent them on their way but the third one was the memorable one and i distinctly remember being set up in a location where i could watch the flow of traffic as it went um east i believe and this little beat up pickup truck i i think i remember correctly went by slowed right down so you knew that they had caught this the decoy out of their their window they'd seen it but they kept going turned around in the next driveway pretty abruptly and then came flying back slowed down enough so they didn't do a lot of damage but they they drove uh, right into the snowbank right yes right into the snowbank right into the like- snowbank and then so I'm sitting there watching I had a good view straight on of 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 where they were and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and there's nothing for it seems like a while, but it was probably only ten or fifteen seconds. And then suddenly, there's boom—the report of a of a rifle shot. And we both, Wayne and I, both run run out there and 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 get them. And trying to figure out what happened before we started questioning, I think we grabbed the rifle out of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I kind of pulled you aside and was like, "I don't know who shot. I I didn't see the rifle come out the window. I don't know if it was a driver or the passenger." So ultimately, we had to ask him. And they admitted to it, but the passenger actually fired across the driver, fully inside the cab of the truck without breaching the, the outside with the, the muzzle of his rifle. And I can only imagine what they were, the, the, just the sound. And I don't remember the caliber, but it was a, it was at least a 30 caliber. It rifle. was a 308. It was a 308. And, um, yeah, the fact that they, that the passenger, who was from Louisiana too, by the way. <laughs> he had come up to do something or another, or maybe he. It was a. I don't remember the full story, but he was from Louisiana, and, and that's how they. That's how they did it. And and I remember the driver ears ringing, not being able to hear anything. And you know, I, I, when I got there, I, I I opened up the passenger side, and the beer falls out yep. on the floor because they hit that, and the the beer was on the floor, so the beer falls out on uh, into the. The middle of the highway there, and not not a very busy highway, mind you, but it was tired. Yeah. And uh, as I'm getting the guy out, they're they're all they're still stunned because of the the report of that rifle yeah. inside that, you know, the cab <laughs> of that truck had to be phenomenal. And they're 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 none of them can hear. It's like they've been through a, you know a war zone, and they're just they, they don't even know what's going on. Here we got game wardens, you know, all over me, and uh, I can't hear. It's ringing, and so yeah. <laughs> that was that was pretty uh and then that other decoy case where I was so mad that I got busted there. So yeah. So you remember that one in Arrow where I do again I had to hide a, it in the- a, another spot where our illustrious lieutenant loved working decoys and he liked this spot, 
But again, there was snow on the ground. So it's, when there's snow out there, you got to be obviously more mindful of where you where you set things up because you got to watch out for not setting tracks and all this other stuff. But Wayne and I were on the ground and and I I got the location, the, the better location where I could actually hide in the bushes and not be seen. But Wayne was going to be on the other side of the Route 16 on the Androscoggin River side, which is literally only maybe 15 feet of bank between the road and the river. So he's sitting there totally exposed except for a snow camo. Yeah, there's no trees. No trees, nothing. I got a little angle there, uh, you know, I got to lay flat. So every time a car comes into view, he has to lay flat so they didn't see him. And there was one particular time, we're just kind of slow going. We didn't end up getting anyone that day, but um, every time it was slow, Wayne would stand up and start talking to me across the road about how stupid this setup was and this was dumb and they're never going to get anyone and (laughs) just not happy with this location. And then a car would come, would show up in the distance. He'd laid back down again. And as it, and when it went out of view, he would say, this is dumb. This is stupid. We shouldn't be here. What a waste of time, blah, blah, blah. And then it was a stretch of time where there was no cars. There was nothing going on. And he's standing up there talking and, again, talking about this and that. But he'd ultimately say this was a stupid setup and he hated it and didn't want to be there. <laughs> and then I hear him. And I'm, I'm kind of hunkered down just listening to him going, yep, yep, okay. And then I hear him say, just out of the blue, hey, what's going on? <laughs> or some words of that effect, which actually made me look up. And the, and little did, did Wayne know, and this wasn't being very perceptive, but there was a hunter actually walking down the side of the road towards his location, and he never saw this, this guy until the guy was literally almost on top of him. And the guy was probably listening to him the whole time, ranting and raving about this stupid setup and... <laughs> Yeah, he took the opportunity to check the hunter's license, obviously. But if he'd been just laying there, quiet, quiet, he potentially could have got a, a guy shooting from the road. And yeah, we didn't totally, totally. Got to be aware of your environments when you're you're like you set up so you can see the decoy and set up where they're going to shoot from. But there's certainly other aspects of walkers and other people that are going by. So that was pretty early in the morning. So I did, certainly didn't. Exp- to see a hunter walking down the road uh well it wasn't a really good place to walk down the road anyways i don't know what he was doing so right anyways um that one case in stratford i want to finish up with that and maybe we can talk into search and rescue because i know that's your favorite topic (laughs) me you glenn eric what a what a a good memory for was what probably the, the year before you retired yep the year before i retired yeah um so glenn got some pretty good intel well actually Glenn and I got some good intel. Uh, the weekend before, we were, again, we were out early, well before the sun came up, trying to trying to get the uh, elusive illegal hunters. And we had worked a, a spot in Lancaster that we thought was good, but I'm, I'm sorry, Stratford. And um, nothing came of that. So we so when the sun came up, we decided to patrol around and look for other locations. And we checked on this location down across from a old railroad bed. And someone had been out there that morning and circled around these fields and left their tracks. You could tell it had been done while we were sitting somewhere else. Someone had been there. So, of course, we were all That's mad never at a ourselves. good feeling, is it? No. no. We mad. Cause, wrong cause, place, wrong time. Because that was a location that we had we had contemplated on sitting. Uh, we ultimately decided to do the other spot, which was the wrong spot. So, no harm, no foul, though, because we were like, okay, next weekend, let's, let it, let's, let's do this and... and uh, and work this and get set up there early and try to catch this person. Yeah. So we did and uh, enlisted the help of Wayne and Eric Fluette. And, and it was three o'clock in the morning, maybe. It yeah. wasn't too terribly early, but it was early enough where 
we all met up in a location. We all got into Wayne's and, and this was a big area, so we used yeah. everybody to spread out in this big area so we could kind of hone in on things. So, right. so uh, the, the one spot that, so we got into Wayne's Tahoe, and then he dropped me off in one location. Now, now when you say that we got into Wayne's Tahoe, Wayne's Tahoe is filled. <laughs> filled. Filled with so stuff. So I think Eric and Glenn were sitting on each other's laps. Yep, or something they were sitting like on that. each other's yep. lap, and I think you got the back little wedge that I yep. had spaced back out wedge. for you. But you, so. would, you would, we had to do this stuff quick because we can't, we can't be seen by mm-hmm. anyone. And so you, you ran several miles to this first location where you dropped me off, and then you had to backtrack, and I think you dropped dropped them off at a different location. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, we were when we were set up, we were only maybe three quarters of a mile apart. But um, so we're set up. And it was right around four, maybe, mm-hmm. somewhere around there, that I see the headlights of a vehicle coming down the hill to this old tote road where the field that I was set up in. And I had a newer radio at the time, portable radio, and I called, I made the call to let everyone know I had a vehicle coming, but the face of the radio lights up like a- Christmas tree. Christmas tree. Yeah. And I barely had enough time to just let them know I had a car coming. And this radio just glows, so I had to shut it off real quick, and I didn't dare turn it on mm. the rest of the time. So this 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 vehicle comes down, crosses over the railroad tracks, and comes through the bar gap of the field that I was actually sitting at. And they do a complete, very slow circle, circle the field, obviously looking for deer, but I wasn't sure what to do because we were kind of hoping on a spotlight to make it really a concrete case. And I guess ultimately I could have jumped out and stopped them right then and there, but I decided to wait. Because in New Hampshire, all you need is the shining and a gun with ammo to fit in the vehicle, and it's a prima facie case for night hunting. For night hunting so, yeah. but it's always nice to get that extra. Yeah, and and so without with thinking, okay, Glenn and Eric are set up about a half a mile, three quarters of a mile away, and they were actually set up on an old orchard um, or some apple trees anyway that are around a field. I figured if this guy is going to come here and do what he just did, he's going to definitely go down there. And at that point, better to have three witnesses than just one of seeing what he's doing. Mm. So he got by, he came back around out of the field and went down the railroad tracks, headed towards their location. And after he had left my view, I was able to turn on my radio, tell him what had happened. And so they got a heads up that the vehicle was heading their way. Of course, from this point on, I, I can't say what ultimately happened other than listening to the stories afterwards. But they actually witnessed them with the spotlights in that apple. In that apple orchard. Apple orchard. And, um, but they but they did a, another loop, to, this time using spotlights, and they decided not to stop them because they came out onto the railroad track and started heading north again. And at this point, the decision was for Wayne to come down the railroad tracks from the north and basically stop them before they could get away. Yep. So they they call me and it sounds like we're all set. So I take off and I'm, I'm going at a good clip again because uh, I got to get down there and I'm a little ways away. So, and the entrance I need is in, a, in the field. So it's in the middle of a field. I blew right past it and I get towards the end of the field and I'm like, oh, I, I missed the entrance. Well, I, I don't want to take the time to spin around and find the entrance. So I'm like, I know if I just cut out through this field and uh, I'll eventually come to the road that goes down through the middle of it. And it's pitch black out and I've got my headlights on. So I cut out into the field and I start going across this cornfield, probably 35, 40 miles an hour. But my, my truck is chucker full of stuff. And going over these corn rows and everything, everything keeps popping up going, kaboom, kaboom, kaboom. And I'm like, 
Now I'm, you know, those guys are like, "Hey, Wayne, where, where are you? Where are you? We got, you know, we're getting ready to take them down." And Glenn and Eric, they they are now now he's turned around and he's past their location, and they are following him in the dark, you know, on foot, following this truck down the railroad tracks as, as you know we're getting there. So, and I jump out on the railroad tracks after I almost killed myself driving through this field at forty miles an hour. Everything's in disarray and everything, and I hit that, and all of a sudden they see my my headlights, you know, down and. uh the bad guys figure it out. The poachers figure it out. Uh-oh. Yeah, the headlights down here, that's not a good thing. And that's when uh, Eric and Glenn do the takedown. And when I talk to one of those or both of those, we might have to regurgitate this because uh, it was pretty intense there for a while. And uh, you were a long ways away. It was. Uh, I was coming. I was I was on foot as well trying to run down and meet up with those guys to help. But by the time I got there, they'd already made the stop and, and gotten the poachers out of the vehicle, which turned out to be a father-son combo, which has a long history with us, but it was a very good, uh, one of the better cases that I can remember. And it was pretty adrenaline driven, I remember, because those guys are on foot, poking down through, and here I am, I'm supposed to be there, and I'm trying to get there, and uh, I don't want to go too fast. I got the pedal going pretty good, and I am taking some serious uh, bouncing through this field. Has anybody ever driven through a field that they know every corn row was uh, a bump, and I am bumping across 40 miles an hour with all kinds of gear in the back of my cruiser, <laughs> just going every which way, and those guys on the radio going, hey, where are you? We need you now, So, which heightens everything, and uh, yeah, so it was some pretty uh, adrenaline dump there and get there and uh, no problems taking them down and everything and went down smooth. So and then and hopefully Glenn and Eric can expound on their first oh, line yeah. experience because they were right there taking down that truck on foot when I was quite a ways away. They could see my headlights coming, but that that was about it. Yeah, that was a pretty awesome case too. Um, and uh, you know, again, it goes back to like information. Like you guys did develop that information and everything, and then work the information, whether it's from an Operation Game Thief tip or whether you develop your own stuff. Uh, you know, that's that's the way we're smart too. But you have time for one more story? Absolutely. You must remember the pursuit in Wentworth location <laughs> from the the guy who almost got away. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. So we're talking about some adrenaline here. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, yeah, I'll never forget that. And that's a great story to pick up because that was me, you, and Young Love. And yeah. Young Love's transferred to New York. He's a New York game warden now. Yeah, yeah, That that this is a great story. So, yeah, go for it. Another decoy location, which was, again— I, I picked that one out, too, didn't Yeah, I? you picked that out. But I picked out good spots. That was not a good spot, though. We It wasn't a great spot. It was but not we, great. We got a shooter. We did, <laughs> um, but there was definitely not a lot of faith in that spot when we, Jeff and I were out there waiting and getting it set so up. time you were complaining about the spot. I was, was kind of complaining a little bit, but not really, because we were there. It was actually a very mild afternoon, late fall, uh, and and believe it or not, no snow on the ground, which is actually better for us. But um, Jeff and I set up the, again, the plywood decoy off the beaten path, just enough so if someone was looking for a deer, they could see it, but it wasn't open to Everybody who wasn't looking. And we, we talk about a piece of plywood, you know, we know what we're talking about, but everybody listening, it's basically a piece of plywood that we cut a deer form out of and, uh, you know, we paint it up yep. and, uh, you know, we're doing the artwork and we're not very good artists. Some of us are, but it's enough to, to, to do that perception. It's cheap. It gets, seems to get shot a lot, but yeah, that's what we have as a plywood. It's, it's nice and easy and portable too. Yep, very portable, easy to throw out at different locations. And, and this one spot we... We were not getting a lot of activity. Not a lot of people were seeing it. And we were there for a couple hours with literally nothing going on. And we did have one individual, though, who did see it. He stopped and pulled out his crossbow from the from the uh, the back of his 
Pontiac Sunfire or whatever it was. I and mean, actually, he he snuck through the woods and took a shot at it. And just pretty good for a piece not of plywood. Even, not even close to hitting it. But anyway, as the New Hampshire laws go, everything that he did was actually legal because he got far enough off the road, and so no no violation there. But we after he left, we decided that as it was starting to get to that point where the, the light was fading, we were going to move it a little bit closer to the road. It, we, and we were a good 80, 100 yards maybe down this, down into the this path that led towards a river bottom. And so I sent Jeff down to move the decoy while I stayed close to the road to, to be able to tell him if some vehicles were coming. So he ran down, he got it about 30 feet closer to the road, and then I heard a vehicle coming. So I, I yelled down to him and he set it up or he was in the midst of setting it up, but it wasn't perfect. And then he ran and he ran sort of perpendicular away from the decoy in case someone shot, he wouldn't be anywhere near it. And he ran quite a ways and then kind of laid down in the woods, lay flat. And this was a I think a black Dodge pickup truck who- Oh, now you can remember what I remember, it is. I remember now. Yeah. Um, you didn't remember then. <laughs> I did remember a key point of, of it though. So this black yes, Dodge pickup came came by at a pretty good clip, and then he slammed on his brakes and backed up, which is not uncommon. That happens quite a bit. And so I'm sitting there, and my, my vantage point I can kind of see, but it, it was very dark in the cab, and I couldn't see what was going on. And um, so sitting there waiting, and again, several seconds go by, and you know that ultimately through experience that if, if someone hasn't shot by now, they're probably not going to. And then I heard the horn beep which is definitely an indication because when someone beeps their horn, they're trying to scare the deer away or at least get it to move so they can tell it's it's real or not. So when I heard the horn beep, I sort of let my guard down and figuring, okay, this guy is just going to mess with us for a little bit until he takes off. It wasn't three seconds after the horn beeped that, again, the shot went off. It never saw the muzzle of the rifle come out the window. And just out of pure reaction, I, I just ran towards the truck yelling, game warden, and they took off with the wheels squealing and and just fast, you know, to be held to get away from where they were. So I get on the radio. Of course, Wayne, again, is, is our chase vehicle. I'm the chase vehicle. And I tell him, and it, it seemed like And I think this is where you, you learn the value of a chase vehicle. I think you always thought I wanted to be warm or something. <laughs> so, and you guys never thought that was really necessary until now. So literally five, it seems like five minutes, and I can see down the road the, the, the location that, Wayne had stashed his vehicle to be out of the out of the way. I could I was watching there, waiting for him to come out because he's our only chance of getting this this individual now. And finally, I see him come out, and he gets on the pavement, and it's almost like he's going in slow motion. And so over the radio, I basically say, "He's getting away. Why are you going so slow? Why are you going so slow?" And Wayne hadn't switched from local two to <laughs> he was scanning the state police channel. Comments over state police. Yep, I'm, I'm broadcasting I'm statewide. I'm trying. And next yep. thing you hear, the local state police dispatcher calling Fishing Game Eleven. And and to this day, I just I still remember her tone and in, in her voice was Fishing Game Eleven. Are you okay? And that's when I told him I was in pursuit. But to my defense, now <laughs> this road I was hiding on was muddy. Do you remember the chunks of mud flying off my cruiser as it went by? Plus the fact you were still in four-wheel drive. That's why you were going so slow. I had to be in four-wheel drive to get out of there because when I started, I was stuck. So I put it in four-wheel drive and off we went and chunks of mud. 
I remember trying to get out of that corner. You're right. I was going slow because I wouldn't turn. It was going bump, bump, bump. And if any of you guys drive a four-wheel drive, you know exactly when you do the, the sharp turn and bump, bump. Now I'm now I'm doing a sharp turn and trying to step on it, and it's not working real good. So I'm trying to get it out of four-wheel drive. I was, yeah. Chunks of mud are flying all over the pavement. Plus, I'm yelling at you on the radio to yeah, hurry Mark's up. Yeah, Mark's yelling at me on the radio, and he's like, you know what? You know, they're getting away. And uh, yeah, no, we're not going to let them get away. So finally, and I think it was almost when I got to you, I was finally getting out of four-wheel drive because it didn't want to come out. Right. So I finally pop it out of four-wheel drive and I stomp on it. So now I got some 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 time to make up, which isn't isn't good. You know, we, we that I should have been on it a lot quicker than I was. I'll admit that. <laughs> I'll admit that. It, you know, you know how that works sometimes. Uh, Murphy's law. But I'm stomping on it now. But I'm not putting on my blue lights because we're working pretty dang close to the main border. I'm a little worried they're going to head to Maine. And then that just that just happens, you know. Now I got to call Maine State Police. I got to get the Maine Warden Service involved. That's a lot of radio work and a lot of other things. So I I am flying, cooking, and finally I see taillights, and I'm like, oh, there they are. And then the one thing, remember, you 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 gave me the description of the truck, which was totally wrong. But the one thing you did give me that was totally right was <laughs> yeah, was a big deer on the tailgate, a big, big buck. buck on the tailgate. So that that that's a good descriptor. It wasn't a Chevy. It was a Dodge. Okay. No, <laughs> but you, you gave me the guy. big descriptor that I could identify this vehicle was, was there was a big buck and the tailgate was down, which was totally awesome. So we're coming up to a T. I finally cut up and I, I'm going behind them. I'm, I'm a little ways back, but I'm waiting for them. They can go left to Maine or they can go right into New Hampshire down towards the town of Errol. So, and they make a right. And I stop them right in the middle of downtown Errol. They still pull over. So, and I get there. They get their um, licenses and stuff, and then I have to employ my interview techniques. So, so why'd you shoot at the deer? And they were like, uh, what deer? And I'm like, uh, oh, we're going to play this game, huh? And I, I remember going, you know, I'm not going to mess around with you guys. You're all getting arrested and off, or you can all go with home with paperwork and drive your truck home. I'm like, and whose deer is that in the back? And one of the guys in the back says, oh, that's my deer. I go, no, wrong. It's my deer. <laughs> My dear, do you understand <laughs> that deer is mine now? Unless we get some cooperation, this truck is mine now. And that's when they started cooperating a little. I'm like, if you guys want to make this a big deal, I can make it a big deal. Right now, it's not that big a deal. You pulled over when you were signaled to. The officer yelled at you. You took off, and they were like, "Oh, we didn't know what he, you know, uh, we didn't know what he was saying. We thought someone was running out of the woods because we shot at their deer." And I'm like, "Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't believe that, but." We, we don't have to go from there because uh, mm-hmm. I, I think you knew exactly what was going on and you ran and at least you stopped now. So we're not going to have a big pursuit and everything. So they ended up leaving with some paperwork and uh, it, it was it was a good case, a good uh, chase. But yeah, I think you've been out there for a lot of my adrenaline dumps, Mark. And, and I always learned, you know, that those that the pursuit vehicle is always essential. And I used to hate it because the guy in the trucks, that sucks. That's a sucky job. It's nice to be out where the action is. Yeah, you get cold and stuff, but you can chit-chat back and forth. And it's it's a better time than sitting in the truck warm. But it's always a necessity. And I always think that guys think that I wanted to stay in the truck warm when, <laughs> until that happened. Yeah, but, yeah without, without you there, we definitely would have lost. If we didn't have someone in a vehicle ready to go, that guy would have got away. Yep. Yeah. And I remember the look of helplessness as I oh, sped yeah. by you. Oh, yeah, right by us, yeah. <laughs> I was debating on whether I should jump in the back of the truck as you're going, but cooler heads prevailed. I, I, I probably had time to slow down so you could, but... Uh. Well, no. we didn't. I didn't want you to. No, I, I was I, waving we, we, you on. You know, I had some time to catch up yep. and, and that's... Yeah. 
Well, we've had some good search and rescue missions together too. I know that's not your your highlight, and that's not my highlight, and I think that's why I got burned out. Not so much the missions; it's the fo- the phone yeah. calls all the hours of the night. What do they I, call that? A necessary evil. A necessary evil, and I think that burns out lieutenants in the North Country for sure. I know uh, Doug got burned out by it. I got burned out by it. Um, you can't get burned out of it because you can't retire anytime soon. So. <laughs> I'm kind of. You're, you're gonna have to switch gears and get promoted or something to to live out your your life as a conservation officer, or lieutenant. But certainly we've had some, uh, and and one probably Amy we don't Baker. really. Oh yeah, Amy Baker, and I'm sure she doesn't mind because she did a nice little thank you too. Yeah. That was towards the end of my career too. I was remembering I was just draw. We were just going to a hockey game here in Berlin, where it was uh, Berlin versus Ken at five o'clock on a Wednesday night. Uh, I'm dropping. We're we're getting finding a parking spot as Troop F calls me about this overdue hiker that had a beacon that just set off her beacon. <laughs> so, and I get to learn a lot about beacons too. But I uh, called you, Matt, and Jim was on that one as well, right? Yep. yep. So the three of you guys, and uh, yeah, I, I got the easy job again sitting in the cruiser, and that was the easy job on that one because it was freaking miserable. It was pretty miserable, and I remember that too specifically because I was on a day off. You called to see if I was available, which I was. You were so always I available went. when I called you. That was that was the good thing about you. Day off, day on. Yeah. Didn't matter. You were there for me. So yeah, the problem with this one was the fact that she was off trail, essentially hiking down a ravine. And this was mid to late January, I believe. Yeah. And um, also a lot of snow. and A lot just, of snow. Just trying to follow her tracks down this ravine because we had to hike up to the top to know, to find out where she ultimately was because there were so many false hits on her beacon. Um, some some hits showed her high, some showed her low, some in between. So we basically had to clear all these spots to be able to find exactly where she was. So Jim and I started high, hiked up Amanus Ravine Trail to the, almost to the top of the ridge where I cut her her tracks going down this, this off-trail ravine and just followed her down. And this is all, you know, starting eight or nine o'clock at night. So I think when we started, mm-hmm. actually started hiking after we prepared and geared up. And then um, I just remember falling up to my neck sometimes in snowdrifts. And you have snowshoes on. I have snowshoes on, and they just break through all the way down. And having to take the reach down, take off the snowshoes, dig them out, dig myself out, all with sixty-five or seventy-five pound pack on, which is not fun. Just very, very strenuous, rigorous sort of evolution the only good thing about it is yeah after hiking uphill we're actually going down so if it wasn't for falling up to our waist and neck at times it it wouldn't have been that bad i don't think but the weather was it was cold but it wasn't overly cold it wasn't snowing i don't believe started raining at the end started raining because it warmed up a little bit Mm -hmm. and then so we cleared jim and i cleared at least two and I, i don't remember there was probably four different spots beacon hits that we'd plotted and we cleared the, the first the top two pretty pretty quickly so and we were following our track so we we kind of could gather that she was down lower than us and luckily matt holmes was still coming up and we were able to try to, to, to divert him to the lower beacon hit and he came in off of a, a covert backcountry ski trail which is sort of snowshoed in and packed in and he, he was coming up from the bottom and we were coming down from the top and he actually reached her before we did and she was fine, um, hunkered down, had had a pretty serious gash on her hand from... From falling down the cliffs and stuff. What was it? 
Well, then I oh uh, no, I think she was trying. Oh, to, she was trying to start a fire. She was trying to start a fire with a knife and ended yeah. up cutting her finger, which yeah. ultimately I think later on she had surgery on to yeah. to repair it. Um, but her her big mistake for that that particular hike that she went on was not having any snowshoes. And if she did, she probably would have been probably, probably and a GPS to too, because I think GPS. it clouded in up above and she didn't know which ravine to take yep. down. Yep. So a GPS, she had a spots which you know. Yep. Well, it wasn't real handy, but a GPS would have probably brought her right to the trail and down. So yeah, she was she'd made it quite a ways down before she ultimately decided to set up a little camp and, yeah. and spend the night when we we found her. But just sure. uh just the whole evolution for anyone who's never been up to the White Mountains is you get you gain a lot of elevation in a short amount of time, and it takes a lot of energy to get up to elevation with with all the gear you have to bring and um. And then hike down through what we'd hike down, breaking, basically breaking trail, breaking through every other step. Um, I, I remember several times, for some reason, Jim was was a lucky one. I don't know if he broke through even once, but I was kind of leading the way. So You were packing everything for he him. He would watch me <laughs> struggle, fall. fall down into my neck, uh, struggle out of it, and then he'd just walk around that location because you don't want to repeat what I was doing. <laughs> but it was one of the, the most the strenuous rescues that I, I can remember being on. Um and just kept being totally wiped out at the end. I think I heard that a lot from you every time you were done a rescue. That that's the worst rescue I've ever been on. So yeah, yeah. Because I don't, I can't remember the the ones prior. Probably that's uh, why. Probably I remember uh, the courier case you were doing a carry out, and he was probably three hundred pounds plus. Yeah. And uh, I remember you going, "That's the worst rescue I've ever been on." Well, that was one of the worst carry outs I've ever been okay, on for sure. Worst carry out. So yeah. worst rescue, worst carry out. Yeah. So you know, no, definitely. So and Amy was very thankful. Uh, Yep. Very nice lady. And I could go on and on about these beacons, you know, um, some of those uh, personal locator beacons that have to be placed upright and, per, you know, perfect in order to get a good lock on. The spots seem a little bit better. So I don't want to be a spots advertisement, but uh, mm. I could be because I would prefer they have a spots over a, you know, personal locator beacon because those things are just, uh, you know, conducive to the environment and how they're deployed mm -hmm. so if they're deployed correctly they're probably going to be right on some of these devices are were meant for sailboats or ocean mm. flat land you know flat ocean right traveling so to bring it up to the mountains you can get a lot of, you can get a lot of false, false locations. locations and it gets just the signal gets distorted and a lot of issues with them we found out over yeah. the years yeah, and it's it's tough to conduct a search with all these false locations because you got to clear every one. So mm -hmm. I'm sure yeah, you know that as a sergeant, you know that as a lieutenant, and uh, you got to go out there and when these beacons get set off, we got to go out and see if we can find the beacon. Hey, Mark, thanks uh, for sharing uh, some of the career that I get to spend <laughs> with you, and uh, it's, it's been really fun. And uh, yeah, you still get some of it to to do new challenges as a lieutenant taking over uh, the North Country. So I, I feel for you, man. I know you do. <laughs> Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures, protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. 
When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch.